I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> Robbie Robbie's weekly. Little reverse pass. Oh, 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 Magic! Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. This podcast is brought to you in association with Volkswagen, a proud sponsor of Irish Rugby. Gavin Casey here in studio in Dublin, joined by the returning Andy Dunn. Uh, how are you, Andy, firstly? Very well. Thanks, Gav. Yeah. Excellent. And we're joined on the line from Japan. Still there, still kicking. Murray Kinsella, how are you? Good, still battling away over here. Uh, saw some familiar faces today in, in Razzie Erasmus and, and Jack Nienaber. So uh, there's a bit of comfort over here in knowing a couple of people who are still involved. But certainly um, lots of interesting stuff ahead of the weekend. It's going to be a cracker. Yeah, last weekend was set up to be a cracker. Um, a monumental day uh, or a man- monumental weekend rather in the life of Andy Dunn. A special one for you, Andy. Because of... Um, I, think, I thought... <laughs> oh no, I thought there was a I thought there was a big day in your life on uh, the, uh Friday yeah. was it? Four oh. It's official, yeah. I'm I'm forty years old. <laughs> uh, and I I think I'm I'm pretty okay with it actually. Excellent. Yeah. I'm hoping to get more debonair and maybe more silver hair and a bit more respect around town or something <laughs> like that. But um who who remains to be seen. Absolutely, yeah. Well, Does not think that that starts to become a thing when you get a bit older, doesn't it, people? People tend to um, I look at you and a bit, you've got a bit more gravitas mm. because you've been around longer. So yeah, no, I I wouldn't know. I'm I'm still pretty young myself. Yeah, but okay. uh, <laughs> no, but happy years away. <laughs> happy belated birthday, and uh, well, you you enjoyed it, I'm sure. But um, maybe somewhat spoiled the weekend by the events that subsequently unfolded in Tokyo. Uh, I had a text from my good friend Connor Scandal on Monday saying, "Surely you're going to have Andy on this week to talk about her," and people have been. Waiting on tenterhooks to hear your assessment of uh, of yes. where it all went wrong. So, Andy, if you wouldn't mind, um, <laughs> cross us beneath the weight of your thoughts about last weekend's affairs. Um, in, in you know, in ten words or less, clarify everything. That's let's go. On, let's go with more yeah. than ten. Yeah. Um. Well, firstly, um, I think it was it was. Um, Really, it was just really deflating. Um, nobody wants to see us perform like that in a World Cup. The the quality of play on an individual level um, it was pretty startling, or the lack of quality, the the handling errors, and the lack of energy, the lack of physicality. You know, from early on, losing collisions looking tired um to me there's when we go back to 2018 even 2017 2018 okay Joe's initial term had great success the the part I can't quite grasp is where his, where we regressed when we were playing good rugby when Leinster were playing great rugby under Joe when Ireland started to play good rugby under Joe and it started to get more and more, it got progressively more conservative. I think there's an element of the IRFU being involved in that they they get 80% of their revenue from the Six Nations and the brief for every coach is win the next match, which puts a coach under pressure and um, can put the team under pressure. And I think 
that changes, maybe that changes from a stylistic point of view, or maybe it explains why Joe suddenly, or it wasn't actually overnight, but we gradually became more and more conservative. And I think he gradually took more and more control. Um, while he, he always had attention to detail, I think the level of attention to detail got way over the top into micromanagement to players where there was huge fear about um, playing off the cuff. And I think that can still work. You, not everyone has to be, you know, a creative artist on the field. Lots of players prefer to be told what to do and are compliant with that. But I think there's a balance and I think there's a shelf life for that level of intensity. And and even in the 2018 season when we got to top of the world um, and we won the Six Nations or the Grand Slam, we all have a um, a tendency to, whether, you know, we've short memories. There were, there were three poor performances. There were in that, and I've no qualms about saying that I'm not being negative. I was delighted we won a Grand Slam, but there were three poor performances in that Grand Slam, but no one cares when we win. And at the time, you know, Wales outscored us, scored four tries against us. Um, France outplayed us and, and Sexton's great drop goal, but no one cares because, you know, we've won a six, the next Six Nations game and that's that seems to be the sum of our parts and our purpose. Um, but the underlying concerns that were there were it was hugely labour intensive it was hugely prescriptive and there's only so long that can be um productive for a group of people and it it started to wane very obviously in the 2019 six nations under under schmidt again uh with with the first england game and it continued on that malaise continued into the Welsh game where we're probably probably alongside New Zealand last Saturday. I think that Welsh game was the lowest or poorest performance under Schmidt's tenure. So we were going that direction. And then obviously the England hammering and Twickenham didn't do much for confidence. Um, the, the Scotland performance gave us a bit of a lift. Japan, um, we were poor and Japan were excellent. There's a there's mitigating circumstances and how good Japan were, but we were poor. I thought we were garbage against Russia, even though we won, you know, comfortably, and uh, we were a little better against Samoa. But if you're looking at the graph, from I think from about 20, 2018 in patches, performance levels versus results were slowly actually disimproving over a period of time. At the the outliers being the England performance in Twickenham to win the Grand Slam, um, and the New Zealand game in the autumn, um, where physicality levels peaked, where motivation levels peaked, where set piece plays peaked, um, and prescriptive patterns all were at their their peak in those games, but the the overlying or the the overlying theme or gradual theme was that I think we we were disimproving for way longer than people thought. Is that to suggest then that actually we weren't quite as good a team as we had been made out to be and as we in Ireland had probably made that team out to be based on that series of excellent results in 2018? That there are, there's not an asterisk next to the results because they were all no, wins were, and it was an yeah. unbelievably successful year, but that the results and a couple of performances that went to plan at key junctures may have masked over quite a, a number of cracks. Well, I, there didn't, there weren't obvious 
there weren't huge cracks or obvious, but problems. But the the, the concerns were we were winning one way. There was only one way we were winning. We weren't winning in different styles. We were winning the same way. We were winning, you know, we scored the same way. We scored by re repeating single ball carriers into contact again and again in opposition 22 and, and just wearing teams out. And we did that all through 2018. And I don't accept that, okay, we got a couple of really good creative tries. We did. But the general theme overall was if you take out the try in Twickenham off the line out with Tyke Furlong's pirouette and you take out Stockdale's try, that's two tries. Like, it's not that big a deal. They were, they were both off set-piece plays. It's, again, was means they were most likely were preordained and pre-called and they worked. But the general patterns and style of play was physicality, running into brick walls, blunt force trauma again and again and again, winning collisions that just at some point anyone worth their salt in an opposition setup would analyse and say, okay, this is apparently how you stop Ireland now. I'm sure Ireland are going to tweak it and change it and come back with us with something different, but we never did. And we, in fact, we closed up and closed up and closed up more and more and more and, and went so far into our shell at one stage, it was it was painful to watch an Irish side with such talent across the board um, and apparently one of the greatest tactical and technical minds in world rugby coaching us who couldn't see what everyone else could see. And that's the part I can't quite fathom. Well, you say everyone else could see it, but maybe a lot of people were blinded to it as well. You certainly saw it and you've been banging that drum for quite a long time, but you also got, from what I saw on Twitter and elsewhere, you would have gotten a significant amount of blowback for pointing that out. Um, well, I'm trying, I, it's my concerns in, in when we were being successful, like, you know, the old, uh, I'll be very lofty, the old Kipling poem, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. Like when we're playing well, the result, you know, we're playing well. We we were getting results and not playing all that well. And I was therefore saying, I'm concerned about the longevity or sustainability of this type of play. And similarly, when we were playing badly or the results were going badly, we we were playing the same style. There wasn't, there wasn't really a differentiating factor between performance for me, between a, a sea change in results or a swing in momentum. Because if you keep playing that way, I think I just felt there was a, an inevitable drop off going to happen. So I think lots of people um, could see it. I don't by any stretch think I'm the only one who was calling it out, but maybe like there's a, from a public point of view, <laughs> there's a, an accountability thing where you don't want to see it because who cares we're winning? Like if the IRFU are going to change how we uh, how we try and manage peaking for at, in cycles for World Cups, they probably need to have a, a whole new PR and media message that, you know, we're going to try new things. We need the public to be forgiving for a Six Nations, for example, or a 12-month period because we're going to try and play a certain type of style that we need to develop. We need to encourage players to, to do, you know. And New Zealand... Um, we're, we're in the same boat, you know, peaking in between World Cups for a number of years and they somehow managed to change, managed to change it. But yeah, I, I, I think there's a, 
there's an IRFU role in all of this because of how immediate they are in terms of their demands on the Irish team. The public, are we accepting of a year of some losses in the Six Nations or two in order to develop a style? And then obviously the Irish management and players have to step up and say, well, okay, they're ultimately responsible for standards and play and they let us down and they let themselves down. But whatever about the public's perception of it and whatever about players and management, the IRFU aren't going to tolerate patience or at least they haven't shown a willingness to do so over the last eight, 12 years. Yeah, they haven't. And uh, with with 80% of the revenue generated um, for Irish rugby coming out of the Six Nations, it's unlikely they're going to completely blow it off and say, no, no, you know, throw a few games. But but I'm not suggesting that either. I mean, you, you can very tactfully get a message out there among the media and you can generate positivity and momentum. Uh, you know, now is a perfect time to come out when people are at a low ebb and be transparent and say, you know, we're going to give... Um, we're going to have a new departure. We're going to not focus immediately on, you know, however they word it. And that's very important from a media and communications point of view. And also, I don't think that's been done very well in Irish rugby for the last year or two, going back to from Sean O'Brien debacle in a pub to all the way through to the Japan World Cup squad getting leaked and a rushed announcement. You know, those things shouldn't happen in a professional environment. Um, there shouldn't be leaks coming out of a squad. You know, it's all these things that we're worrying. But if if we have a perfect time and opportunity now to delicately say, let's give the team some breathing space, let's try a few new things with a view to peaking at the next cycle, if that's what everybody wants. Otherwise, we need to shut up going on about World Cups and just accept we're not going to peak at them. If we keep playing rugby, that is the same style and might win the odd Six Nations game. You you cannot go into a World Cup playing the type of rugby we play and expect it to to, to last seven weeks in a row. So, do you? I think you alluded to it a, a few moments ago, but do you think that there was almost a regression in our conservatism over the last yeah, yeah. 12 months as opposed to us sustaining a, a general style of play that had served us well we actually almost with, uh, withdrew into our shells a little bit more the closer we got to the tournament think, as, and as the tournament progressed yeah i think it got worse and worse and i think it was a classic case of the walls closing in and those involved from from looking at externally it looked to me like a group of people that couldn't see the wood from the trees very, very easily happens in any business environment where there's pressure. Sometimes, you know, they get an extra, you know, that's why companies like Accenture exist. You know, these management consultants, you give them, give them your watch and they charge you 10 grand to tell you what time it is. You know, they, 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 we needed someone to come in and look at externally and somehow, you know, lift the lid on the pressure gauge that was building up in there. I mean, we did things like we started. We start. We we started picking mo- more mobile players to play a more physical game. Like we started, you know, we were picking Andrew Porter because he was dynamic and good at the breakdown. But really, what we were trying to play was a really conservative game that would have suited John Ryan, that would have suited Reese Ruddock or Devon Toner, none of whom were in the team. So we're picking more mobile guys like Ty Byrne 
when, you know, so they're classic signs to me of like, this is actually becoming nonsensical because we're trying to play so conservative. We're talking about this hybrid mix of players. You're, you, if you set your style out to play conservative and play one out rugby, you pick the biggest, physical, strongest guys. You pick the specialists in their position who can do their job. You don't, you know, if you want to play a wide, fast game, go for the hybrid, athletic, mobile, dynamic guys. But we still, like, they're indicative of huge problems to me that just, it ceased to make sense after after a period of time. And I think it was really an implosion. Uh, tough to watch, I'm sure, horrific to be a part of as well. Yeah, the one area in which I would disagree with you is that the idea that there wasn't a drop-off in our performances over the course of the 12 or 18 months, like where we were doing something similar a year ago and we're getting results and this year it was just unsustainable as you say like because say like Owen Tulin will have mentioned in this podcast plenty and most people watching this team would understand that their style of play is predicated upon a low error count mm. and suddenly we were making errors at a rate of knots that we weren't making say 12 months ago yeah. but I wonder what you're speaking about there where suddenly the water is just extremely muddied and it does become if you say nonsensical that that can contribute to unforced errors as well, because it just becomes um, very difficult to figure out what exactly is actually going on. You know, like it, it, at least last year, they had a clear understanding as to what they were doing. But if, as you say, you bring in players like Ty Byrne, who can link up play really well, but we're not even playing that style of game, yeah. then maybe it just, uh, things fall out of sync somewhat. Well, I, the, the, the unforced errors in the New Zealand game are... They're, they're, there's a much deeper psychological reason for that level of poor play with the quality of players that are there. And it's very hard to be exact on that. We've probably all seen um, teams break down in front of us in multiple sports, whether it's gradual or, or very, very sudden. And you're looking at players that it's so out of character to be that poor um, to me, there's 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 a much there's always a much deeper reason for that. Um, for me, it was um, a level of intensity driven by Joe and the management that just couldn't be sustained. And at that psychological level of intensity, that's a lack of fun, that's a lack of empowerment. It's players not really having a healthy sense of empowerment in any way. Players being, having their heads ripped off by management for making mistakes. It just starts to, you know, if if we heard it once, we heard it a hundred times, the infamous Monday morning blood on the floor video sessions. Like there's, there's more than one way to raise a child. You know, there are parents who have a laissez-faire attitude who probably are complete liberals. There are parents who are completely strict. There are parents who are somewhere in the middle. There's 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 management styles within an office group, within a, a business and within a sports team. And you do not need to go in and have blood on the floor every Monday, you know, and handpick out every, and in slow motion go through every error. So there's a, you've raised a culture of fear among players, which there absolutely was. Um, and then you start getting high grade elite level players looking like amateurs on the field. And it, that's a psychological thing that when I hear Joe come out and say, there's nothing I would have done different. It's, it's startling, you know, or you hear there was a lead up into the World Cup of talking about, you're hearing, 
players perpetuate these lines such as, you know, Joe and Johnny know what's going to happen on the field before it's happened. You know, really is rubbish. And it's it's like, a you know, an internal loop within the group where they're, where they're you know, reinforcement within the group. All is good. Johnny and Joe know what's going to happen in the future. And you're hearing Chris Farrell come out and saying, I like playing with him because he knows what's going to happen in 10 minutes time. Well, they don't. Nobody does. But it, when you hear it and you remove yourself from it, these are problems. That's that's a culture within that group that's gone wrong. Um, and, you know, it manifests itself in the most basic looking handling errors, the fact we couldn't physically compete in any way when we could eight, 12 months ago. New Zealand didn't get excessively stronger than we did 12 months ago. We just couldn't physically summon up the energy levels to take them on. We were falling off collisions from about five minutes in. Rory Best got smashed after about three minutes and, you know, took time to get up off the floor. You know, that can happen, but it happened across the board. And to me, it's that's instructive. It shows there's a much deeper issue going on. And I think it started to just crumble apart in 2019. Yeah, I asked Owen this or something similar on Monday, but, and I, maybe I'm harping on about it a bit too much, but um, one of the things that struck me most about that game is that, say after 20 minutes, I think you can nearly write it off and write off pretty much everything that happened, including the unforced errors, including losing collisions. Because I just think, again, what you talk about, the, the psychological effect of of what happened in the first 20, where you give up a lead that really is going to be insurmountable against a team like the All Blacks. Any team in the world is going to be able to tell you, yeah, you're not going back after a two-score game. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not going to be pulled back. And therefore, you know, you start to force the issue. You just start doing stupid things, looking for Hail Marys and, and, mm. and things that just aren't done. But it's the first 20 minutes, <laughs> the fact that they were so far off it for that small period of the game that, that ultimately proved costly uh, and fatal. But do you think that first 20 minutes even was just symptomatic of the last, you know, nine, 10 months? Yeah, it was. I mean, I, I, I was hoping with my heart that, okay, I'd never liked the style in the last two years. We're still open. Okay, we can we can be very, very physically strong. We can be com- combative. We have a good set piece. If we're going to use one-out runners, we may win collisions. If we, you know, get the emotional pitch right going into a World Cup quarterfinal, I was still hopeful we could be way closer and, and indeed... With a, with, a, with a potential weak point in the New Zealand scrum, for example, and, and ways to try and stop them, I was hopeful that, you know, we'd at least hit the ground running. So, yeah, it, it, it definitely didn't happen. And for me, the reasons, unfortunately, are, are have been long running. And, you know, if you look at form, that's not been addressed. Like, there's... I don't know... I... I have a sense we're the worst at it in the top seven, eight nations in rugby on form selections. If you look at Rory Best, Peter O'Mahony, Connor Murray, Johnny Sexton, the core leadership team within that squad for the last 12 months have been poor to awful on a number of occasions, all of them. Um, O'Mahony seems to get a, a free pass a lot of the time on it because, you know, he does the unseen work which is the 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 rugby intellectuals way of saying you know he's getting through a lot of work but you don't you don't actually see it but I do. Yeah, That's I should rubbish. point out like, that you had, you used air quotes there when you said unseen work <laughs> given it's a podcast. Yeah. Okay. But um you know best has been poor. Yeah, Johnny's been very poor. Murray's been very poor. They're they're key players. 
Now, if you look at England, you've got George Ford, who's been outstanding for you, just gets drops. There's there's no national outcry. Bowden Barrett's the best out half in the world. He just gets moved aside because Richie Mwunga comes in. Now, Wales lost Gareth Anscombe. They won a Grand Slam with Anscombe. He was brilliant. Just get on with it. It sounds like there would be a national inquest if any of Best, O'Mahony, Murray or Sexton it was even questioned that they should be dropped because there was articles coming out going, these guys, you know, ultimately we need to rely on these because they implement the game. How about we stop relying on guys who aren't playing well and put in younger guys or guys who are playing well, at least give the guys a kick up the arse or at least change it up. But as long as you perpetuate the idea that we can only be at our best with four or five key people who implement what the coach wants. You're you're becoming very one-trick based. And I don't see it happening across the board in other teams. I mean, everyone seems to have a, a more diluted sense of responsibility in their team management and how their team plays, uh, multiple ways to call um, attack. It's not all driven in a hierarchical structure to one guy at the apex who's all powerful. And we had that on the playing field and then we had it in the management. Um, and it gets tiresome, I would imagine, as well, for, for both the people to, you know, for Joe and Johnny to implement it, for everyone else to listen to it. Um, and then you've got to ignore form as well. So, you know, it's it's completely filled with problems across the board. But if you... If you devolve responsibility and you give you've a, a group that is on edge to perform and knows that no place is safe, you start to get much more sustainable teams like New Zealand, like Kenny, like Fergie's Man United, like Jim Gavin's Dubs that consistently perform over long periods because they've a changeover and a transition in personnel, and it's not all down to one guy. Um, and I think that's been another um, underlying problem for quite a while. In Irish rugby. Murray, keen to bring you in. Just your thoughts on what Andy has said so far. And then we'll touch upon as well some of the comments by Brian O'Driscoll and Eason Asewa in a moment. Yeah, it's been absolutely fascinating listening to Andy. Um, and it's very hard to disagree with, with any of it. I, I mean, even to touch on the last point there, it's probably something we've discussed. What if he had gone with Reese Roddick and Jordan Larmer? and Ty Byrne, who all played well off the bench actually in this game. And I, I know we mentioned in the members podcast, it's probably easy to dismiss that and go, oh, look, New Zealand have won the game already, but New Zealand were still trying to score tries. Jordan Larmer made a really good impact. Reese Rolex carrying was excellent. And maybe you look at Schmidt and, and feel like he did used to have that ruthless streak in, with selection. You know, I think Andy's mentioned before, there's a famous example of him, um, you know, cutting Brian O'Driscoll a couple of times, even with comments, or he actually dropped Brian O'Driscoll at one stage for Ono Mali. You think back to Leinster, and that probably faded away. And and he, like being so close to it, it's probably harder to see at times that okay, these guys haven't maybe delivered the performances, and it's not just going to happen out of the blue. Um, they're not just going to be you know the big occasion will will bring out the best in them, which I probably believed to a fair degree as well. I, I certainly in our preview podcast we we were mentioning that we felt. Okay, they're they're up against New Zealand. There's so much pressure on this one game. It'll bring out the best in guys who have done it very, very often. The in terms of the playing style, like the really damaging thing is that even the things Ireland had focused on and were usually so good at were really poor in this game. And and he's mentioned the physicality there. Like looking back over the game, the number of opportunities. And look, this is easy for me to say. I've never played the All Blacks. I've never dealt with that physicality. 
Um, I've not done it on the pitch like these players have before. But you look at the number of opportunities, just analysing the game, that, that they actually had to go and, and make those dominant tackles like they did against the All Blacks uh, as recently as last year. And they, they just missed out. They sat off. That lack of energy was really apparent. And then you look at the attack and I think in Joe Schmidt's mind, he'll say, listen, we actually created three or four really good opportunities. And if you actually look at the examples, it's probably hard to argue with the the thinking on those set piece plays or those little um, bits of structure in phase play. The thinking where they were trying to like find a weakness in the Kiwi defence, yeah, it was absolutely there, but... The fact was that twice they ran the wrong line. Rob Carney ran the wrong line and they conceded a try off it. On another occasion, Rob, Robbie Henshaw was far too tight to, to Johnny Sexton as well and, and they missed an opportunity there. So even the things that they've clearly spent a whole lot of time working on, even those things were, were failing them. Um, and that's, as, I, as Andy's mentioned, I think that's the kind of the sign that the, the belief had just sapped out of the players. And, and for me, that's why the comments from Issa and and Brian O'Driscoll actually in recent days have been so interesting. Um, I, I suppose from Nathaniel's point of view, who's very honest and you, you got to respect that because he's always an honest guy and he's obviously been very close to Joe Schmidt and I, I would imagine he doesn't take too much pleasure in, in critiquing and criticising Ireland, but he's talking about how in the 2017-18 season, once Leinster started playing this attacking brand of rugby under Stuart Lancaster, he said he felt like a little bit of that Leinster I suppose that that flair is the word he used. That it, it came into the Ireland camp, and and maybe Joe's mindset around that tweaked slightly. But then when it came to this year, he went back to what he knew. And, and O'Driscoll has kind of said something fairly similar. He says it's his theory more than what he's heard. Um, obviously, both those guys are very well connected. But he said he just wonders did the dy- dynamic between Leinster and and Ireland just um, maybe unsettle the players' unbelievable belief in the Joe Schmidt way because. Before Lancaster came around, obviously all the coaches, all the players said Joe Schmidt's easily the best coach I have. Once Lancaster was there, a lot of them were saying I've had two amazing coaches and, and these are the two guys. O'Driscoll's kind of hypothesis was that, um, you know, before it was 100% belief in what Joe Schmidt was doing and that that was the way to play rugby. And then suddenly you have this different version of success and a different approach with a more unstructured, I suppose they, they call it that comfortable in chaos. Their training sessions obviously revolve around that quite a bit and and then maybe have this nagging doubt about how you're playing with Ireland and and maybe that kind of tugs at, at players but but certainly it didn't look like a group who were fully fully invested in, in what they were doing on the pitch because those errors they made are just uncharacteristic and that's not for a second to to take away from the individual performance levels which just for those players of that caliber um, were hugely disappointing for themselves and for their coach as well. I know he, Joe Schmidt mentioned that when he got back into Dublin, he did his press conference there rather than doing it here before he left. And he said some big players had poor games and that they'll live with them and haunt them. So yeah, there is a whole lot in it. But I suppose over the the, the last couple of days, you're starting to unravel little, little bits and pieces of it. You're probably starting to hear more of what, what was going on in the camp over the last couple of years. And certainly that seems to be the sense that Schmidt almost did have a, a bit of a, slight shift maybe in how he's thinking about the game he tried to bring in maybe more unstructured elements of it but you know that's just the antithesis to really of what he has believed for so long and that really structured play and micromanaging every little bit of detail around it um, and I, I would imagine that was a struggle to try and get away from that and, and certainly didn't look on the pitch like Ireland ever really embraced that so Mary, Mary you had um, as far back as Matt O'Connor taking over after Joe um in Leinster and on record it's saying you know he had to try and deprogram people mm. 
you know, he was getting asked questions where he just couldn't quite fathom. An adult was asking him the question, should I be between the 11, 11 metres in from the touchline, 10 metres or 9 metres? And he said, well, how would you make a decision? You're an adult. Um, that that was a famous quote. It won't go in. You know, I know that happened within the squad in a team meeting because that attention to detail, which isn't actually all that relevant, is is worrying. And the, the iron fist or the iron grip that Joe seems to lead with was... Uh, was something that it didn't become new. It's been there for a long, long time. And, you, you know, Matt O'Connor is a very well-respected, smart rugby brain, but obviously thinks differently. And, have, you know, there's a very, very different environment around his Leinster side after Joe had gone. And initially it was viewed as weakness because people were given freedom. Oh, no, he, you know, he doesn't go into the detail Joe goes into. Well, how is a bit different? That's all it is. And players have to get deprogrammed and comfortable and actually take some responsibility and make decisions. Then you get exposure to Lancaster and you get players coming out of Irish camp who are arguably delighted to get back home to their province, take a deep breath and have a bit of enjoyment again. But there's no lack of attention to detail. It's just a diff it's just managed with a more democratic process. And I think that that is a really you know, that that's a long way down the road to explaining the drop off the cliff in, in performance psychology that happened watching this Irish team, that exposure to a different style all of a sudden and exposure to a whole new world where I have a choice and a vote and freedom uh, of expression, that, that, rang, that gets in on people. And that, you know, when you go back into the very strict environment that is clearly Schmidt's regime, it probably starts to, to rankle with people a little bit. And then suddenly when it's not going all that well, it drops off the cliff. And and that's been, I suppose, the underlying issue. I think that's why Issa's comments and Brian's comments are, like you said, so intriguing because they've they've had access um, to both management styles. Yeah. And I think they've, they've got a level of understanding there that maybe lots of people on the outside wouldn't have got when we looked at a succession of good results back in 2015 to 18, you know? Yeah, it's it's amazing actually. Just while you guys were talking, my phone buzzed twice from uh, the 42 members WhatsApp group and there were two questions uh, which both have, have kind of been addressed now. One from Neil Sinnott asking uh, about the comments from the Sewa and Bod and then one from Michael Healy which I, I might just ask anyway, and just to get, uh, just just to put his question out there specifically, or in its specifics rather, uh, Michael says, could you ask about the high level of detail you hear about in the Irish camp, as in when a new player comes into camp, they're, afra <laughs> they're afraid of seeing Joe in the hotel because he might ask them questions on a certain player or whatever, uh, brackets. I know it might not have been actually this bad. It uh, was, it was. Like, and how is that normal? Sorry, in a, with grown adults. That's that's the big issue for me. Yeah, and he, he says versus, uh, I have never heard that coming from any other international team, albeit I wouldn't be in a position to hear uh, any of the players. But does that tie yeah. into the whole structure set of not being able to play in an unstructured way? Yes, says Andy, in short. Yeah, we should we should also mention like there are every other international setup, there's intense pressure placed on the players. That's kind of part and parcel of it. And, and obviously we don't talk about other setups as much, but like, Eddie Jones is applying what we would probably see as horrific pressure on his players to deliver. And sometimes the, that comes with what Andy's mentioned about being dropped and, and that reminder that you're not, un, you're not untouchable, that 
you can your place is is easily like we can fill it with someone else so there is definitely severe pressure on other players and other squads but it's probably of a different variety and it's probably not as probably hasn't been rather as relentless as as it would be under Schmidt with that sheer level of detail which is just so extensive it goes into everything like every single time you're carrying the ball you're you're trying to remember those details and you, you think of people dropping simple balls in in that game and they're trying to probably process what the little bit of structure is where they need to go next what they need to do what's been planned for this um this passage and and there was a real lack of i suppose that fluid sense of of players being on the ball and, and making decisions and um and trying to use their skills that way um and probably actually it fed back the other way as well you think of Leinster's Champions Cup final against Saracens where they struggled probably to make those decisions um on the ball and they didn't have that fluidity and it was kind of a jarring Leinster performance, I thought, and, and maybe there's an, an overlap that way. Um, also, before I forget, we should mention the East and the Table comments were on Will Greenwood's Sky Sports podcast, and then O'Driscoll was on off the ball. I know we get frustrated mm. when people probably don't credit us, but uh, they were really insightful, and it was probably really honest. And for those guys, I'd say, who know Joe so well, it probably wasn't enjoyable kind of coming out with those comments, but it probably gives us that bit of insight. And I think what Andy says is fair as well, and obviously like Joe Schmidt is at his lowest point I would say of his career and we're not we're not trying to stick the knife in while he's down but um, as you reflect on it and as you look at that performance in, in the cold light of day and, and there was just there was nothing there to to grasp on positively um, yeah it's, we've got to be honest and it, it's been fascinating to listen to Andy there yeah no it, it, it's it is our, our job well certainly your job to be honest and mine to just ask questions but like I, I do find some of the blowback kind of astonishing, really. Maybe it's just the sociological or cultural moment that we find ourselves in where any sort of criticism is described as negativity. And uh, you've got everybody from CJ Standard's wife, Jean Marie, to Michael Flatley queuing up to take pops at the media for their <laughs> for their essentially being meanies, Andy. Whereas what are we supposed to do? Just sit here and be like, well done, lads. You know, you did your best. Like everybody knows they did their best. Nobody's questioning the no, effort or the dedication yeah. of these players. Nobody's questioning questioning the past achievements of these players over the past year. Nobody's questioning them, questioning them on a human level or questioning them as human beings. Or at least nobody's saying is. A few people obviously are, but, you know, forget about them. Like, it's a rugby conversation about where it went wrong, not about, you know, what kind of disasters of men are these people. You know what I mean? I was I'm curious, like, you've been away for, or you were away last weekend, but what have you made even of the the reaction to it or the reaction to the reaction to it, if that makes sense. Um, I I think you're, if, you know, you're you're buying on. I, I think where the danger, and I, I, my, I'm, I have a different career. I'm a, I'm a physiotherapist. I'm not a journalist. I have, I'm a pundit with an opinion. And um, I think the danger, any grey areas start to happen is where people are talking about their, their loved ones or, you know, these people have feelings. Um, we all do, but, you know, it's you're in the public domain and if the const if the criticism is constructive, I think it's fair. If it goes into uh, personalities um, and being unfair on personalities, then you're in that grey area. Um, now, like, I would look at myself there and say, I don't know Joe Schmidt as a person. So um, potentially is it borderline to say he's a control freak? It is probably because you're you're then, I'm talking about his personality. But everything I hear and see about what he does looks and sounds like he's a control freak. 
that's that's so so I can understand where people blow back and say give these give these people a break or give the players or management a break and um, they've done a lot of good for Ireland they have um but there are there are you know you you have to have an opinion I I can tell you I dearly would have loved to have seen um an Irish team with the level of ability that's there and experience playing a different brand of rugby for the last two years. Um, and I go, personally, I couldn't care less if we won a Grand Slam, if we had a better World Cup. But that's that's a bigger question for Irish rugby and the public again. But I do, I can understand blowback when it becomes very personal. If it feels like an attack on a person, personal character. But in terms of overall performance and delivery of performance and execution, I think the media and the fans and anyone has a right. That's the magic of sport. Everyone's got a right to fall in love with it and fall out of love with it and be critical. And as an ex-sportsman, I know, um, you know, on the end of some horrific uh, ratings out of 10 and <laughs> horrific comments. and Before the advent of the 42.e, I should yeah, add. Yeah, yeah, you just get hammered and you do, you do grow a thick neck to it and that's it. You just got to get on with it. And uh, yeah, so look, I... I, you know, overall, I think the media treatment of the Irish team since the World Cup exit and throughout the World Cup has been fairly sanguine. It hasn't been, you know, it hasn't been overly destructive, I don't think. One thing that's going to be really interesting to see, and Joe Schmidt's already said, you know, he's had plenty of offers. He's blown away by that. I suppose he's got that message out that, listen, I'm, I suppose I'm still wanted elsewhere, even if people here are unconvinced now after that that World Cup and he's also mentioned that he's going to be back in June or July of next year so so that break from rugby clearly isn't indefinite it'll be really interesting to see where he turns up and also to see whether his philosophy with the next team changes or is affected by what happened in this World Cup um, or whether he views it as okay this method has a shelf life and I'm going to go here for a couple of years try and win as much as I can and then move on to the next one it'll be fascinating to see what he does next because clearly his methods do initially work particularly well. Murray, I think, um, having not been coached by him, but again, observing fairly closely, I think he'd be a brilliant assistant coach or technical coach within any group because that's what you want from your assistant or your technical guys is this incredible attention to detail. Mm. But you need a an over, you need a guy over it all who isn't, like that. You need a guy who's yeah. who's able to step back a bit. And I think that was his his trick when he came in. People were like, God, I've never had a coach like this at this. You know, I've never had a CEO like this. I've never had a chairman who's got this level of detail and knows about everything that I do. And therefore I, it brings up my performance. And that's a, that, that was a, a trick card for him for a couple of years. But I think mm. after a while, you you need your your over, you need your your boss to empower the staff. You need the staff to have that attention to detail. You need people making decisions without the boss being in the room and coming back to the boss and saying we've we've gone and had a look at this and this is how we're going to do it. And and I, the one that springs to mind uh, to me actually is Gatland. You know, um, and even Mike Ruddock before him who won a Grand Slam with Wales. I can guarantee it are nowhere near the level of attention to detail that Joe is. But that's not a slight on them. That just means they have a different management style and maybe they employ people around them to be a very effective technical or assistant coach. And I wonder, will I, you know, maybe will Joe 
reflect and his next job is that role and he'd probably flourish in it. But I, I, I think that overall management style definitely has a a period where it, it can rise up, then stagnate and then drop off a cliff, you know? Hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, it has been, like I've been around the other nations a lot more in the last few days and the likes of Gatland, Hansen, you're right. Gatland doesn't technically have a massive influence on that. Steve Hansen, he's a manager. He's like a football manager. He's not really a coach in the vein of Joe Schmidt. Razi Erasmus has obviously got great technical knowledge, but he's also the director of rugby, so that's his role. And he's got someone like Jacques Nienaber, who's the nerd on the pitch and delivering yeah. all that and incessantly studying footage. And he's brought, obviously, Felix Jones in to do something similar. Um, so, yeah, you, you do see that maybe in the other environments. And you also see them... Like, I know the media doesn't decide what happens on the pitch, but it is a part of the job. It's a big part of the job. Those guys, like, they're taking the piss at times in pressers. They're so relaxed. They're having fun. Clearly, Eddie Jones is literally throwing stuff out there to distract journalists, keep some pressure off his team. Whereas Joe, I suppose, like, it seemed to stress him so much with the media. He was always, I, I guess, obsessing over what people were saying. And I often wonder why he was wasting his energy with it and why it, mm. it, it seemed to be so serious to him. So, yeah, there's all those little bits in it, like, and... Yeah, we should we should say like obviously it, it did work and his methods worked in Leinster and, and Clermont Auvergne when he was his assistant coach it obviously worked there as well. So clearly this is a rugby genius we're talking about and uh, it was it was kind of jarring to hear him also mention that he hadn't taken a day off for six and a half years, which is mm -hmm. it's almost worrying. You hope this guy just goes away and has a bit of a breather and and reflects on yeah. it all as we're doing now and and like clearly he's got so much value in the game and he's changed a lot of people for the positive as well, but probably has to reflect on, on on what went wrong in the end. Yeah, well, again, like if we were to sit here and wax lyrical about the whole Joe Schmidt journey, um, I think it'd be doing a disservice to listeners and, and to rugby fans, generally speaking. But uh, generally speaking, um, within sport, you know, not even revisionism, but uh, a campaign or a, a tenure like that will age well with time. And certainly in five, seven, ten years time, we'll look back on the Schmidt era and we'll probably wax lyrical then um I, I think it's interesting what you're saying about his I, I don't know we will. I don't know we will so I, I, oh, I, well you might not the results speak for themselves the performance levels at times no no one will care about but there is hope in my mind it's very very significant hope with the likes of Farrell with potentially Lancaster down the line and with an incredibly good youth system that we can be just as good with results with a far better style of play and performance. So that would then pigeonhole the Schmidt area into, some, Schmidt area into something different. But, but that's, it, that's uh, I don't know, that's my hope. Yeah, but, but I think it, it would still be perceived as the foundation yeah. from which all of that mm. was built or the bedrock upon which it was built. I, look, as, as you say, I, I, you don't know and I don't know either. I'm, I'm only suggesting because... Like, I think it's dismissive of Kidney's Grand Slam, Eddie O'Sullivan's three triple crowns. Um, I think that was all part of coming to where we are now as well. Fair, yeah. I, I, I do yeah. think that they're remembered fondly as well. Like if yeah. you if you think back to 2007 and the way that all ended, it was worse than now, but it, you know, the reaction wasn't that dissimilar to now. Yeah. And yet people have still over the course of the last three or four years gone, oh, well, do you remember under Eddie, we used to actually play a bit of rugby. Yeah. Um, and, and people sort of feel as though Eddie is underappreciated as well, hmm. given what he achieved. But um, interesting what you say about the media obsession as well, Murray, with Joe, and like it, it certainly was the case. And I would have heard it through the, the grapevine through various rugby journalists and people involved on a more hands on basis than myself. But like, even his 
he would have had a couple of snipes off you and others for for teams getting out early in the past. And I remember talking to somebody heavily involved in the Wales setup. And uh, when an Ireland team to play Wales was leaked, Joe wasn't all that impressed. And the person involved in Wales was like, Warren wouldn't have given a shit about that. He probably didn't even see the Ireland team. You know, it's just people have, have very different approaches, obviously, to uh, to that role. Um, you mentioned, obviously, Eddie uh, Jones having a bit of crack with the media and we do need to touch upon those other two semi-finals before we let Andy get out of here. Um, Spygate, uh, <laughs> a bit of a smokescreen <laughs> one would suggest, Murray, uh, a suspicious red light spotted in an apartment overlooking a training pitch. Um, it seems uh, almost Scooby-Doo-ish or something, but uh, Steve Hansen has, has uh, kind of put it to bed to an extent, called it just the perfect material for clickbait. So. As a clickbait merchant, Murray, yourself, um, <laughs> how have you uh, have you have you enjoyed that little bit of a distraction, as the lads or as 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 Hansen has called it? Well, it is a bit of fun. Like most most press comments are bloody boring, and like no one seems to be enjoying it either side. So to be honest, I, I don't mind Eddie Jones coming out and saying this kind of stuff. Probably more pertinently, they're they're both talking about the pressure that the opposition is under. Eddie Jones saying, listen, there's so much pressure on these guys. They're back-to-back champions going for their third ever where Steve Hansen's talking about England having failed so miserably at the last World Cup on home soil and maybe some of the players having scars in that regard. Probably most pertinent of all is actually them having named their teams now um, and a couple of, just one change each actually, uh, but mm. but quite notable tweaks because obviously England have gone back to, to Ford and Farrell as the 10-12 combination Henry Slade dropping down onto the bench and Tuilagi moving to 13. And for me, that looks like a really positive, proactive manoeuvre because, like, look back to the Lions test when when Sexton and Farrell eventually played together and that 10-12 combination did work because it gives you that extra ball player to attack and try and pick out some of the flaws in the, the New Zealand defensive system rather than trying to bosh over the top of them with a really direct 12. I really like that move from Eddie Jones and... I would probably back up his comments that Ford wasn't just dropped last weekend. That that he um, that he was just changing it slightly based on the opposition and 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 what they wanted to do with it as well. I'm I'm really enthused by England making that move. They obviously still have more than enough physicality if they do want to bosh, but to have those two playmakers and and their ability to stay straight up the pitch, make good decisions, make it tough with those decoy runners if those powerful guys are used as decoys and then they go out the back it's often very simple but it's done superbly and in the face of a lot of line speed which which the All Blacks are going to bring on the All Black side Scott Barrett coming into the back row is a very interesting manoeuvre as well from Steve Hansen Sam Kane who was excellent for 40 minutes against Ireland um, he goes to the bench and, and Barrett obviously brings line out that's the thing people are going to focus on he he does bring real line out skills and they obviously tore England apart in that area back in November in London people probably remember a couple of steals I think Metallic had a couple Barrett had one um, and they really went at England in that area but also he brings like he shouldn't overlook his other skills he brings really good handling ability you saw those tip on passes from the All Blacks their ability to really changed the picture last minute for a, a defence that's blitzing at them and they had real success with that against Ireland. He can bring that in, in bucket loads. He's also well able to mix it physically. He's he's obviously a lock primarily and he can clear out rocks and make big tackles. He's really mobile and, and can offload as well. So it, it makes it even more fascinating for me, those those two, what seem kind of like minor changes, but, but really re, uh, change the whole picture really. Where is the winning and the losing of this one for you, Andy? It's uh, it really should be the World Cup final. I feel yeah, it's, it's just such be, an I unbelievable cannot, game. I cannot wait for it. I I would say 
you know, the parts of the New Zealand game that, you know, if you can call them even weaknesses, was potentially their scrum and line-out and set-piece. Um, their broken field stuff, there is no weakness because they have so much variation. They have such a high skill level and execution under huge pressure. There isn't there isn't a single weakness in their phase play. Um so really you are clutching at straws a bit, but if I was to look at that England uh pack, um, you know, potentially the likes of Sinclair, Marler, Dan Cole, Mako Vunapolo as as their four props are a stronger collection of props than the the All Blacks. Um and I would imagine they're gonna go for the kill on that, much the same way South Africa did in the first twenty minutes. Um but I think where England have a, a potential trump card is that they have they have that aligned to a very dynamic group of people outside of those props also, and not that the the, the props are very dynamic within within their own working environment too. As as props go, that's a dynamic group of four props that England have, but their their nuts and bolts is unbelievably strong. Um, I think the George Ford selection is. It's been fascinating to watch how they've just seamlessly interchanged there between, as I alluded to before, um, they obviously don't have this apex structure of control. They can, and neither do New Zealand, and they can they can dilute responsibility across leaders in the group. And it was a really smart move to pick Farrell because, uh, against Australia 10 because it was very obvious who Australia picked in the centre and what they were going to try and do. And, and, you know, to be fair to Ford, he's not shirking tackles. He's made 53 of his last 55 international tackles, which is the highest success rate in outhaves in world rugby. But he's probably soaking up a lot of them because he's small. He's not missing them and there's not a lack of bravery or technique. He's 5'8", five, 5'9", five, and, and significantly lighter than the guys coming at him. Whereas Farrell, you know, can we all know, can physically stand up and be more abrasive. And that, that foiled something Australia were trying to do. As soon as it was foiled, Ford came back in and started playing in a, quite an old-fashioned out-half control the tempo of the game, control territory. He's got all the strings to his bow in terms of being a threat as a runner, being a good distributor, kicking for territory. Um, and I think he deserves the start because at some point in his career, he's got to get back to in a big environment again because, you know, he, he was a fall guy in the Lancaster World Cup against uh, both Wales and Australia. Um so he, you know, it's 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 cathartic, hopefully, for him to come in and, and get a start in a semi final and and make a real impact. Um, and then I think the 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 two guys that that I haven't mentioned yet that stand out for me in the English lineup is uh, Curry and Underhill, who are redefining the the role again. You know, and this happens in cycles when O'Driscoll came in. Uh, he redefined the role of thirteens. You know. Then you got the likes of um, Pocock and Hooper. Sorry, oh. Re, you know, redefining how back row play is is done to a degree. And these two just look like, you know, the two point version of those two lads. They're freaks. Their their work rate, their contributions around the field with ball in hand, without ball, work rate, uh, fairly freakish. Um, and then a lot either side of a guy like Billy Billy Vonapola. 
it's a serious team. Um, and I actually think they have their best chance to win the World Cup since 2003. Um, and I, I have to say, I like watching them playing. I like their style. Um, and I think they're very complete. I, so, yeah, it's a shame it's not the World Cup final, but it's going to be some game. Yeah, I might come back to you and put you on the spot for a prediction in a moment. But firstly, Murray, which way would you be leaning in this one? And just give us your thoughts on how you feel it will go. And actually, just because we're coffee time, you might finish with your own prediction, if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, put me on the spot. I, I, I'm going to have to <laughs> stick. I, I, I went for England at the end of last season. You asked me for an early prediction for the World Cup. And I just felt if they kept everyone fit and um, kept everyone fit and firing with all the incredible athletes they had and, and that ability to now play make as well and their kicking game as well is another tool that they have and Elliot Daly at fullback sticking with that when it probably didn't go well at the start and there was obviously cause for them to to change that up and he, Eddie Jones stuck with him and he has that left foot and, and that ability to kick return and counter-attack so they've added in all those little tools along the way and it's really interesting to I suppose contrast that not to go back and dwell in Ireland but Andy's talking about maybe Ireland not having evolved and, and England clearly have done and, and moved things forward slightly even with that back row now it helps when you have absolute freaks like on Underhill and Curry, and um, but there is so much to like about it I, I really like their kind of Saracens-esque attack again like Saracens it's probably underrated and undervalued because you know maybe it's not about individuals sidestepping and um, making big line breaks but when everyone times their runs superbly and you've got multiple options outside the ball it, it, it flows so smoothly I'm really really impressed with that Listen, the All Blacks hit a peak last weekend. That was their best performance in a couple of years, I would think. They they still have room for improvement, scarily enough. They gave away 14 penalties against Ireland, which is really remarkable. And that kind of, again, underlines that Ireland were so poor. 14 penalties and they couldn't even get a, a shot off, really. It, it's incredible at test level that they got away with that uh, and weren't punished for it. So I think that'll be a massive focus for them. Um, but if they deliver something similar, again, it's going to take a... Um, a 10 out of 10 performance from England. I feel that England have, have been gradually moving up through those gears. It hasn't been perfect yet. Um, and I think that they will hit that peak um, in, in this game. I know even Joe Schmidt was saying he thinks the winner will come from this semi-final. It's hard not to see how that happens. Um, I suppose from the All Blacks point of view, they've found this beautiful formula now with again, by, by changing and evolving with those young wingers, Severis and George Bridge, who were excellent against Ireland, with the centres who are the lesser experienced, I suppose, than Ryan Crotty and Sonny Bill Williams, how tempting it must have been to to put those guys in with their World Cup experiences and, and their know-how and their savvy. But, but but Hansen, to be fair to him, he's been brave. And, and those guys are now the ones providing the energy and, and the older players are, are probably feeding off that. You saw Kieran Reid having one of his best games in a long time. Um at number eight so they found that perfect blend as well so it is extremely tight to call this one but um, I, I suppose I'll try and stick this time with my long term view because Ireland you, you got swept up in the the big occasion and maybe didn't look at the kind of longer term thing but yeah I felt all along that England have this World Cup in them and, and it is everything they've built their game around Eddie Jones has been so clear and honest about that they weren't focus on the Six Nations. I know it's easy to say that when you're when you're losing, but by all accounts, they were working harder towards the World Cup. That was the the big goal. He obviously had his successes um, earlier on in the cycle and, and he had that, maybe that comfort of, 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 of easing off in the Six Nations and focusing elsewhere, but it just feels like they've been building towards this. I uh, can't wait for the game and I, yeah, I go for England just to pip it. Andy, firstly, how are you for time? And secondly, what's your prediction for the game? Uh, I agree. I think uh, I'm going to 
Plum for England. Um, it's, I am so thoroughly captivated and intrigued by this match. <laughs> Can't think of a game in terms of individual matchups, team styles, you know, recent history. Um, it's definitely the most intriguing game in, in recent memory for me. And, and by recent, I mean, I am 40, so I'm talking about the last five years, maybe. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I think I think England will will do it, yeah. I do. Mm. And I think potentially it's the first ever All-Northern Hemisphere World Cup final. Oh, that's saved me a job. We can just go home now. Forget Wales that I forget. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Murray, Chesney Colby ruled out is probably the main talking point from the other semi-final for now, just in that we don't have Wales' team. It won't be out until tomorrow, tomorrow being Friday. But uh, what do you make of the South African team? And um, if you could kind of sum up in a minute or two what you, what you make of the game, generally speaking, and how you see it going. Yeah, Colby's a big blow, I think, for all of us neutrals as well. He's been so enjoyable to watch. What a wonderful player. Again, speaking of smaller guys who are brave, he's defended really well. His footwork is obviously exceptional and, and he lights it up. I don't think the box have probably got the best out of him. And that's, I guess, the concern for them is their attack hasn't really flowed defensively with, with Jack Nienaber, who obviously people know from Munster. They're really exceptional in, the, in that area of the game. Their forward pack is cohesive. You saw their 40-meter mall. That kind of summed up how they can... Um, grind and, and eventually completely crack through you if you, if you don't stand up to that grind and, and that would I, would I would guess would be the formula again for them Wales like are they're exceptionally lucky to be in the semi-final they played really poorly against France and that game completely hinged on the red card to be fair to Wales they they fixed themselves after that and they got over the line just about in the end but that was a poor performance from them and, and wouldn't exactly inspire a whole lot of confidence I think Gatlin will feel that they have that out of their system. They have had their their warning. He called it a, a get out of jail card. And I would certainly expect them to be better. I think this will be a, a real kind of battle of the defences, a little bit different, or certainly a good bit different to the other semi-final. Um, and, and they'll both be trying to completely stifle and smother and suffocate each other. And at times you, you think maybe both of them would be happier without the ball and and trying to feed off errors and, and South Africa certainly using that pace that they have out wide. Nkosi's not a bad replacement. He's pretty prolific as is uh, Mapimpi as well. So there'll be a lot of kicking, I would imagine. There'll be some shuddering hits and the physicality level in this will be off the off the charts really. Um, my sense is that I think South Africa might just squeeze through there uh, in, in a tight battle. Maybe penalties will, will be important, maybe even a drop goal. We've seen Wales do that earlier in the tournament. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see the box going through. Okay, South Africa, England for Murray, England, Wales for you, Andy. Yeah. Sticking to that? Yeah. That sounds good to me. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Andy, we'll get you out of here. And Murray, thanks a million for joining us again. Have a good rest of the week. We will catch you for... Rugby Weekly Extra, the members pod over the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. I think you're going to be chatting to Sean Farrell after both semifinals. So looking forward to tuning into that one. Uh, members.the42.ie is the link if you want to become a 42 member and listen to those extra podcasts. We've been firing them out uh, to the point of borderline insanity, I would say, over the last couple of weeks. But it's been enjoyable at the same time. Uh yeah cheers lads and thank you to everybody at home thanks to the two lads in the whatsapp group as well for the questions hopefully we uh, in a roundabout sort of a way answered them uh, have a good week everybody else at home enjoy the rugby over the weekend most importantly two great games to look forward to podcast today was brought to you by volkswagen a proud sponsor of irish rugby thank you for listening and we will catch you over the weekend until then take it easy 
I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> Robbie Robbie weekly. Little reverse pass. Oh, 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 Magic! You're not alive, boys, so you start kicking when the real.